education as like a stamp of approval in the sense of, oh, I have my high school diploma or I have my college degree. Therefore, I can go out into the real world and add value. Um, that's just not the way the world works anymore. Welcome back to the Hannah Franklin podcast. I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm talking to Tim Sharmack. Tim is an entrepreneur. He's the founder of a multi-million dollar marketing agency in the real estate space. And there are a few reasons why I was really excited to have Tim on the show. One, Tim is probably the most well-read, self-educated person I know. And there are a few contenders for that title. Two, Tim took an unconventional approach to his own education. He dropped out of college to go become an entrepreneur, and he's hired a number of non-traditionally educated people into his company, everything from college dropouts to homeschooled kids to kids who hadn't even finished high school yet when they started working for him. And in today's episode, Tim and I talk about his experience working with non-traditionally educated people. We talk about what makes a young person actually qualified to come work for his company, especially when they're only 17 or 18 years old. We talk about Tim's own education, the parts of it that were valuable to him, the parts of it that weren't. And we talk about entrepreneurship and how to raise entrepreneurial kids and inspire entrepreneurial tendencies in young people, even if they don't think they want to own their own businesses someday, how that still can be helpful to them in both their professional careers and their lives. Tim is a wealth of knowledge. We probably could have talked for six hours instead of just two, but we covered a lot of ground in this interview, and I hope you enjoy. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. Hey, Anna. It's great to be here. I love your setup. You look this happy capitalist platform marketing, John Galt Mortgage Company t-shirt vibe is awesome. We'll talk about all of this stuff today. Uh, I feel like your backdrop is is the teaser for the conversation we're about to have. Um, I want to start with a comment that you made just before we hit record, which is that education is not synonymous with schooling. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, I've 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 definitely observed that in my own life, in my own career, that you know my my education was not like an assembly line experience the way that it is for most kids, you know, where you go to first grade, then you go to second grade, then you go to third grade and fourth grade and so on and so forth. And then after high school, you go to four years of college and then maybe you go get a job or some people get a graduate degree after their, after their undergrad. And it's just like one step after the other. And it's very linear. It's very pre-planned. Like, you know what the next step is, you know what variables you're optimizing for, right? You want to get good grades on the test so that you have a high GPA so that you get accepted into the best college. And when, when once you're at college, if you're optimizing for a job, you do separate things. And if you're optimizing to go to grad school, you know, cause you want to qualify for the best grad schools to, you know, get your MBA or, you know, uh, if you're going to law school, right, you want to get into like a top 10 program or whatever. And it's all very linear. Um, and it, it's very known. So if you, if, if you compare and contrast that to an entrepreneurial attitude towards education, almost what entrepreneurship is at some sort of gut level is ignoring variables or or acknowledging that the variables are like all independent variables. There's really not many dependent variables in an entrepreneurial uh, education. And so you can't plan it, 
right? Like you don't automatically know what's going to be a good investment or a poor investment. So what what that might look like, and I'll just use my own personal life as an example, is, you know, I graduated high school. I was a pretty good student. I was always one of those kids who had just, I was lucky that memorizing things came easy to me. And that's essentially what school is up to a certain age is just, are you good at memorizing shit, right? So I was good at memorizing. And so I got good grades. In college, kind of the same thing. I'm a, I'm a good writer. I'm good at memorizing stuff. So I would get good grades on my papers. I'd probably forget everything a couple weeks, you know, after the class. And I kind of realized towards the end of my college experience when I was essentially a senior in terms of credits that like, I don't really want to pursue a career in the field that I'm heading into, which at the time I was majoring in, uh, in uh, economics and finance. And I don't, I don't want to take these next steps of going and getting an internship at, you know, JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or some financial institution and trying to build a career, um, you know, as a Wall Street trader or a financial advisor or an analyst or whatever. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And I think at, at some point in college is when I realized I'm learning a lot more from the books I'm reading outside of class than I am from the books I'm reading for class. And that convinced me to, you know, drop out. And what my education has consisted of since then is just reading a ton of books, listening to podcasts, constantly attending conferences, joining mastermind, coaching groups, uh, hiring consultants. You know, I've, I've paid people, uh, you know, $10,000 for one day of consulting. You know, I've found some really successful entrepreneurs and they've said, Hey, here's what I charge. If you just want to like spend a day with me, my day consult rate is $10,000. And so, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, Oh my God, that's, that's like a, you know, almost a semester of entire college classes right there in one day. It's like, but if you could spend time with an entrepreneur that has done exactly what you want to do and then some, could you compress the amount of practical education into that one day that otherwise might take years in a college setting? And I think the answer to that would surprise a lot of people. So it's a lot of random experimentation, you know? Have I attended conferences or bought books or bought, uh, you know, marketing training programs because I own a marketing advertising agency. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to keep up on trends of marketing. You know, um, have I bought marketing programs or gone to conferences that ended up being a total waste of money? Yes, absolutely. So I'm not claiming that when you ditch the normal assembly line mentality of education that everything you do is a great investment of time and money. It's not, but look at the alternative. You know, it's always compared to what? I think right now going to college, the traditional four-year route is an incredible waste of both time and money, you know, four years of your life and probably the hundred thousand some dollars that you're going to spend on that. And so to me, the cost of kind of, I guess, building my own education was very, very uh, minimal. And so to me, it's always just felt natural to answer your question, Hannah, that education is not synonymous with school. Like, of course it's not, you know, like the things I do for my clients with Google ads or YouTube or Facebook ads or video editing or copywriting projects or, you know, uh, designing marketing campaigns and marketing strategy. I literally did not learn any of that in a classroom and I actually couldn't have because none of that stuff existed when I was in high school or college. Like Facebook ads weren't a thing. Facebook barely existed when I was in high school, college. The mobile ads platform hadn't 
rolled out yet. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if I had told someone in college, I'm going to build an advertising agency that specializes in social media advertising, the first couple of questions someone would have asked is, what is social media advertising, <laughs> right? Because it really didn't exist. And so that's, that's obviously the problem with this assembly line mentality of like thinking that school is synonymous with education because a lot of what you need to succeed in the real world, whether you're going into the business world or not, um, it can't be taught in school because the knowledge doesn't even exist to be put out into textbooks and disseminated through, you know, teachers and official state mandated a curriculum and everything. You kind of have to learn it by experimentation in the real world of just figuring out what works and uh, what what doesn't work. So um, I think I stumbled upon that phrase later on in life that education is not synonymous with school. I'm not sure what book I read it in. You know, but just looking back at my own life, that has definitely been the case. That it, it would, it would never occur to me if I wanted to get smarter at business. Oh, I should apply to you know MBA programs. Like that thought would never even cross my mind that that's the most efficient way to increase uh, you know my knowledge on on uh, on business. And then when we look at how that applies to hiring, you know, because platform now has I think. Uh, coming up on almost almost 50 employees amazing uh, actually so it, it, you know we're 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 not a tiny shop that has me and two or three other people right it's a it's a legitimate ad agency now i guess and uh, you know we also have this other company that we just launched the John Galt mortgage company which is obviously um, a mortgage brokerage completely different you know industry a completely different type of uh company and we're excited and we're growing that uh, as well. But when I look back at all the people we've hired, like it, it never even occurred to me. It never even crossed my mind that I should care about whether or not someone went to college, if they have a graduate degree, what their GPA was, what classes they took. Like, cause it was just obvious. Okay. Well, if you're a cool person and we think you're a culture fit and you're just professional, like you show up on time, you get your shit done when you're supposed to do it. You know, if you screw up, you own it and you fix it. If you just have those those soft skills of being a you know being a professional in the 21st century, we can train you on the job on all, on all the specifics of what you need to learn about digital marketing um, and real estate because we our uh, ad agency specializes in working with realtors. So that's kind of our niche is we do digital marketing campaigns for real estate brokers. Uh, we can we can teach you all that right. Like I don't care if you didn't major in real estate in college or if you've never taken a marketing class in your life, because what you would learn in those classes is probably outdated already anyways. You know, I actually pulled up on my phone, I'll grab this here, a list of just, this is just some of the majors that we have working at Platform right now of people who actually have college degrees. Keep in mind, like, I don't. I was studying like economics and finance in college. I didn't actually uh, get a degree. So there's some people that, um, you know, we're studying other random things that are not included on this because they didn't even graduate. But in terms of the people that actually have a degree, here's just like uh, a sample of what some of our employees have. And remember, we're a marketing agency that specializes in real estate. So here's what our here's what some of our team went to college for: psychology, sign language, urban planning, audio production, economics, business. Greek and Hebrew studies, political science, 
social work, uh, nutrition and exercise physiology, communications and Western legal traditions or pre-law. Uh, we have a theater major on the team. Uh, we have actually an employee who has a graduate degree in, uh, in a counseling to be like a, um, uh, a therapist counselor. Um, and that's, that's still uh, forgetting um, a decent chunk of our team because that list now is actually like a couple years old. So there's like new people that I need to update with with their completely random ass, you know, degrees. It, again, at least the people who have degrees. We don't care if you have a college degree. Like we do not care if, uh, you know, frankly, if you have a high school degree. We've we've hired people in high school before that didn't even yet have a high school degree. They were that young because I just recognize this person's sharp they're intelligent. We can train them. We can probably offer them more money than even their teachers are making in high school. And I don't care if you haven't graduated yet, you know. So education as like a stamp of approval in the sense of, oh, I have my high school diploma or I have my college degree. Therefore, I can go out into the real world and add value. Um, that's just not the way the world works anymore. Maybe it did 75 years ago, but not anymore. Like, how many books you read or what podcasts you listen to or what uh, videos and tutorials you watch on YouTube uh, says a lot more about the direction that your career is going to take and how uh, resilient and creative and interesting your career is going to be than where you went to college or what your GPA was uh, in high school. Um, in fact, the last thing I'll say before I shut up on this epic monologue is that one of my favorite things to do that just keeps the business interesting is when we interview people with a straight face, I'll ask them, okay, just one last question. Uh, do you have your transcripts from high school? We just like to see what your GPA was in high school. So if you could go ahead and forward that to support at platform.marketing, uh, that'll go straight to our hiring. And we just always want to keep that on file for people that we're interviewing. And then just seeing the look of shock and terror on people's faces when they realize that I just asked them to send in their high school GPA because they're thinking like, oh my God, I thought this interview was going well. And now this might take my chances of getting hired because I had a horrible GPA in high school or, you know, whatever. And then I wait for them to, you know, to like see that sense of nervousness on their face. And then we just start laughing and we kind of bond over it and it builds rapport that like, obviously we don't care. Uh, we don't care about that. But I think the fact that you can actually make that joke tells us a lot about modern society, modern culture, where we're at with our relationship to education, because there's enough of a hint of truth to that, that people think it's a question that we might ask, um, you know, Hey, what was your grade point average when you were 16 for a job that you might be 30 years old applying for that people actually think we're serious. I think that says a lot about where we are as a, as a society still today. Well, it also is, it's certainly reflective of how, high school kids feel in terms of the pressure put on them around their grades. Because even if it's not as direct as my future employer when I'm 30 years old is going to ask to see my high school transcript and my GPA, they do think that their future employability rests almost entirely on whether or not they're passing tests and getting good grades and how many AP exams they've accrued because that leads to what colleges they can get into and then what colleges they can get into leads to what jobs they qualify for. Like until you get 
off of the conveyor belt, which for most people happens after you have your bachelor's degree. If you were, you know, a relatively good student, you're just kind of, you're, you're, you're a promising student. You should go to college. You can figure out later what you want to do with it until people get off the conveyor belt with their degree. I don't think people have any sense that their employability can be separated from their education. And by education, yeah, because that's, I mean that's schooling. all you've what, ever known. Yeah. And everybody's told you, you really have to study hard for this test because if you don't pass this test, then you're not going to have a high enough grade point average for this school year to be able to get into the college that you want, to be able to get into the career path that you want. And when you talk to high schoolers and you see how stressed out they are about whatever tests they're prepping for, it makes me sad because... Yeah, I mean, still, still to this day, I think the most stressed I've ever been even with all the business decisions we've made and all the stress of building a, you know, what's now a multi-million dollar company with, you know, employees spread out across the, you know, US and um the the most stressed I've ever been is in high school and college studying and cramming for tests. Because like I'm not sure if it's just your your brain where it is in that stage of life where you can't comprehend that like the stakes of that test. It's not as if your life is over if you get a C on a test, right? Like things will be fine, but your, your brain at that age can't comprehend that. It's all that you know that matters. So like if you're studying for a world history exam in freshman year of college and you feel like, oh my God, I, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get a good grade on this test. Like you are freaking out and it can ruin your entire week. It can throw you into like anxiety and depression. If you don't get good grades, I have friends who have been on like anxiety medication in college because they just couldn't cope with you know, the, the, the stress of feeling like they had to perform so well in all these completely irrelevant classes. And as I'm just shitting on education and school, I want to add the caveat that, uh, I love learning and I love books. So I'm not one of those just like street smart entrepreneurs who, um, has these hot takes about, you know, hating school or think that college is pointless because I never read books and I, I just, you know, learned everything on my own, but I'm not an intellectual or whatever. Like I have a library right over there in my office that has over 2000 books in it. I actually had to buy a condo about a mile from where I live just so I could have room for my library. Uh, and I've basically turned it into my office because my house was not big enough to house all the books that I have. Um, at the at the rate I'm going, you know, at some point before I'm 40, I'm probably going to have like 4,000 books. And so I may need to like buy a bigger condo and just custom build more bookshelves there. So I'm reading hundreds of books a year. And when I say books, I mean real books, like, you know, two, 300 page books. I'm not saying comic books or, you know, like the summaries of books. Like I read hours a day. I love listening to podcasts. I watch the financial news every morning. So I'm always up to date on what's happening in the treasury markets, bond market, you know, equities, uh, the jobs reports. You know, For example, the jobs report just came out this morning and that affects what we do because we work in real estate. We now have a mortgage company. I need to see how that's affecting mortgage-backed securities and you know, the uh, interplay between that, like the 10-year treasury, um, and obviously the inflation reports and the uh, Federal Reserve, you know, meetings that they have every year and listening to speeches from, uh, you know, Powell on what they might do with uh, interest rates. I bring all that up to say I consider myself 
in a in a in a practical maybe entrepreneurial sense a bit of an intellectual you know i'm not just doing the basic things of facebook marketing or social media ads so don't think that just because you didn't get a phd or just because you didn't go to grad school that you can't live a life of uh, a life of intellect right where you're constantly reading books learning about things you're an interesting person to talk to i think that's probably one of my uh like greatest fears in life deep down is I'm scared of not being an interesting person to talk to. You know, like when I look up to like uh, some of my entrepreneurial heroes, uh, some people we both know, like Isaac Morehouse, like I just respect the hell out of him because he's both a successful entrepreneur and he's an interesting person. He's really well read on philosophy and economics. And so when we hang out, we can riff on you know, what's going on in the business world, how his company is doing, how my company is doing. But we can also talk about philosophy and economics and politics and what's going on and all that. And it's just this interesting, robust kind of like renaissance type conversation. And I always want to be so well-read that I can have interesting conversations with interesting people and they'll actually enjoy talking with me, right? So that's something that's, that's, something that's really important to me and I don't have any, any degrees. So if you've ever thought the same thing about yourself, realize that you can still achieve that um, even if you don't go to four years of college or get a grad degree or you know, pursue, um, you know, pursue the highest levels of education. This is part of why I like talking to entrepreneurs specifically about education so much is because one you have a much more practical lens through which you're viewing education than someone who's done nothing but be in schools their entire life. And, you know, people who've spent their entire careers in schools also have a lot of insights to bring to the table. They have, you know, often lots of experience working with people, like either children or adults learning in different capacities. I don't mean to diminish that, but entrepreneurs who are, out in the real world, they're seeing the practical applications of what they're learning tend to have a really sharp and really precise perception of what's actually useful, um, which is part of, you know, when, when you started describing your own educational journey and the way that you're consuming content, you're making honestly, more space to learn than a lot of college kids doing the bare minimum to pass the test so they can, you know, get check all the boxes and have a good time in college along the way. But you're also, you're thinking about what you're learning in a way that, I mean, this is what learning is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a lifelong pursuit that's this iterative process of you become curious about something or you have a practical application for some form of information, you have a thing in the world you want to accomplish, a thing you want to learn how to do, a type of conversation you want to be able to have. And so you go learn to the task or learn to the application or just, you know, satiate some of this innate curiosity. And then you go apply it to the world. And then that brings up a subsequent set of questions that you can then go answer and the learning becomes this iterative process where you learn and then you do and then from the doing you come up with a new set of questions and then you learn again to the next next set of tasks and i think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people come out of traditional education 
with, and by traditional, I don't mean, you know, ancient traditional, I mean the institutional tradition of the Go, past Yeah, going to a public school years. or, or a, yeah. frankly, even a private school, right? Because yeah. there's not public a whole lot of difference. Or, yeah, public schools or any other school that's built off of the sort of Prussian model, uh, which is a lot of private schools too. But the entire structure of the system is predicated on the idea that education is just a thing that you complete and it's a box that you check on the much longer to-do list of a lifetime where it's like, okay, there's education and there's higher education and then there's career and then there's retirement and there's like a bunch of other, you know, steps along the way that you're supposed to complete. But it's a it's a phase that you grow out of. And curiosity is a thing that you grow out of. Like we consider culturally curiosity to be a very childlike trait. And I find that uh, really off-putting that we just sort of relegate it to Oh, this is a, like little kids are really curious about things. Like you'll you'll all grow, yeah, it'll be yep. fine. Um, and I think you're embodying a lot of what I think a lot of parents who listen to this podcast, but also a lot of people sort of intuit they want themselves and their kids to embody, which is learning not just as a thing you're doing for someone else or for some like prerequisite requirement, but for yourself. And a thing that like by the time you become an adult, you should have learned the foundational skills to learn and then you can rinse and repeat and iterate on those for the rest of your life, which is what you're doing. And I think most people come out of school with the exact opposite, which they're just like, oh, thank God I never have to do this again because that was terrible. Yeah, yeah well, the average American does not read a single book all year. That's the average American. So if you even read like which is one insane. full book a year you're reading more than the average. And so if I read 100 books or 150 books a year, just think how, I mean, I'm not even sure what that percentage is, right? Because I didn't major in math. Um, think how many more books like expressed as a percentage I will read in my life and how many different perspectives and lessons I've learned from people far smarter than I am, right? That wrote, you know, maybe a memoir about their life in business or their life as a, economist or whatever, um, how much more like rich and nuanced of a perspective I'll have if I'm reading a hundred times what the average person reads in a year compounded over my life, like not just for one year, but compounded over my life. Like it's, it's staggering the, uh, you know, the amount of learning I'm actually doing compared to the average person who may have a college degree, you know? So now, Reading again, just as I said that education is not synonymous with school, reading books is not synonymous with uh, with education either. Because some people can read books and they're just skimming; they're not really processing anything; they're not really thinking about it. Um, I make an effort whenever I read; I always have a pen. In fact, I will not read a book if I don't have a pen. <laughs> if I find myself on a road trip or on a flight and I have a book I want to read but I don't have a pen, I will actually not read that book unless I stop at a gas station and buy a pen or if I'm on a plane, if I can borrow a pen or get a pen from someone else because I need to write write notes in the margins or if it sparks an idea that I can't fit in the margins, I'll find one of those pages at the front of the book or the end of the book where it's a blank page and I'll write like, hey, something on page 48 made me think of this. I wonder if this is related to this because I want to capture what I was thinking about at the time as I was reading the book and I will underline things that are, you know, the most interesting statements or ideas because that's why my library that I'm building has value to me. Like if I can go back and grab a book that I know I read six years ago, because what I do is I always autograph all my books. Um, so it will say like, 
on all my books, it'll say Tim Shermack on the inside cover. And then I'll write the date that I started reading it. And then I'll also write what was going on in my life at the time that made me interested in reading that book. So it's almost like like uh, my library is this like living time capsule of all the things I've been interested in over the years. So I can go grab a book from seven years ago. And, you know, I actually uh, grabbed one recently that was, it was, uh, I forget the title, but it was something to the effect of like how to build a digital marketing agency. And it was written by this guy who had built and exited and sold like a hundred million dollar agency on the lessons he learned doing that. And it was a book I read, I think it, it was actually eight years ago. It was in 2015. And at the time I wrote, you know, I'm reading this in, you know, October of 2015. And right now platforms revenues are currently at, uh, you know, $25,000 a month. You know, hopefully someday we can get to $50,000 a month. Um, you know, that would be, that would be amazing. And, you know, um, all of my, all of my financial needs would be taken care of if we could just hit $50,000 a month in, in gross. Obviously that's not profit when I say that, but like gross revenue for our agency. And I'm reading that like laughing. Cause it's like now our agency is not at 20 or 50, but like $300,000 a month in revenue. And so going back and putting myself in the perspective of like, wow, like I back then would have never known we'd be at where we are today and rereading this book and seeing the things that I underlined, I have a completely different perspective reading it with eight years more experience. And so there's like different things I took out of that book that, uh, you know, that, that didn't jump off the page to me back then because the problems I had and what I thought was important are different than what they are now. But the same thing is true if it's, if it's not a business book, right? Sometimes you might read a novel. I even underline things in novels. If a character says something really interesting, I, I will underline it. Like, oh, that's, you know, that's something that if I'm skimming through this again in the future and I don't want to reread the entire book, I just want to see what things I underlined I thought were important. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to leave like a intellectual paper trail of what I was interested in because I think that makes it easier to grow when you're aware of the steps you took to get from where you were on, you know, on a topic five years ago to your understanding of it uh, today. How often do you feel like the things that you underlined five years ago resonate for you versus you go back through a book and you're like, wow, I missed all of the valuable points in this book when I read it the first time? Because I have, I, I also annotate a lot of my books and I have like business books that I was reading when I was working for Praxis. So I was working for someone else at a different company and I was very new to the business world. And I would underline things and take notes on things. And when I go back to those books now, the things that I thought were interesting then yeah. are not yeah. even remotely interesting to me now. And the conclusions I'm drawing, I'm looking in the margins, I'm like this isn't even helpful anymore. And I just took up like yeah. all the margin space that I now can't use for the things that are currently useful. It also shows like the intellectual, uh, you know, growth that you've experienced mm -hmm. if you re you reread some of the stuff and you're like, wow, I can't believe that I thought that was a, you know, like a breakthrough insight that was worthy of being underlined, you know, because now it's just common, you know, common sense to you. Um, so very often when I reread stuff, uh, I am, I'm, I'm almost laughing at what I thought was important before, but now I have the power of perspective. And so sometimes like, things I underlined back then, I'm like, whoa, I actually had no idea how profound 
you know, that, that idea was because I just didn't have the experience at the time to actually understand what the author was really saying. Like I maybe theoretically understood it, but I didn't really like grok it. Right. I didn't like deeply understand what they were, what they were saying there. Um, and I think as I've gotten older, more experienced and hopefully a little bit, you know, wiser on life and business, uh, one thing I've learned to appreciate is reading biographies about entrepreneurs. Cause I think there's much more, uh, like depth and nuance to, you know, learning about business if you read it in the context of a narrative. So like a, a business book, a nonfiction book is obviously an author trying to kind of like distill, you know, years of their experience and wisdom into like actionable points. And the, like the whole purpose of a business book is that you should be able to read it on a three hour cross country flight. And it's just the information, right? Not a ton of background information, just the straight up, here's the tips. The problem with that is that the older you get, and I'm assuming you're, you know, working in the, in the business world, the more you realize that like most advice is context dependent, you know, um, it completely depends on the scenario that you find yourself in. So you could tell someone, is it a good idea to, to cut expenses and save money? It's like, well, contextually that can be really good advice, but what if you're trying to grow your business and you're in growth mode, you don't want to be like cutting expenses and saving money. You want to be finding ways to spend more money and invest more money on growth. Or if you think, you know, the uh, analogy in, you know, personal health and fitness, I guess would be in a generic sense, is it good advice to tell people, uh, eat less food because the less you eat and the more of a caloric deficit you're in, the better shape you'll be in. Like, yeah, that can be good advice, but what if someone's trying to gain muscle? Like, what if their goal is I want to get stronger and gain muscle? If you tell them to eat at a caloric deficit, it's the exact opposite thing they should be doing. They should be aiming for like a 20% caloric surplus and trying to eat like a gram per pound of body weight in a, you know, protein every day. So like the more you, I, the more you read biographies, the more you realize like you're learning all the context of why this entrepreneur did this or didn't do this. And uh, I think that's much more interesting and actually much more relevant to making making business decisions, whether it's about hiring, advertising, growth, downsizing, acquiring companies, building a company from total scratch, innovating a new product idea. You know, like you might think Walt Disney or Steve Jobs or Henry Ford or Rockefeller or uh, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt were amazing, you know, American entrepreneurs, but until you read their biographies, you don't really realize how insane their stories are of, of, uh, what they did. And I think I'm learning a lot more by reading biographies now than I am in going to Barnes and Noble and picking up the, you know, latest, greatest business, uh, bestseller. Cause like biographies just give so much more context around, um, you know, why an entrepreneur did what they did that I think it makes it much more interesting. And also biographies are great if it's not about entrepreneurs. So I know there's probably a lot of people listening to this that maybe don't want to go into a business career. Biographies are still super interesting. Like I read um, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography last year about uh, Einstein. It's like a whatever, eight 800 page biography about the life of Albert Einstein. And I'm not a scientist. Uh, science is definitely my weakness in like an academic sense. I didn't get awesome grades in science 
in college. In fact, I hired one of my friend's dads who was a doctor to take my science exams for me when I was taking online classes so that I could pass my pass my science classes. And he he like agreed to it if I like took them out for dinner. Cause even he, as like a doctor, knew like this is dumb. Why Tim is obviously going into business. Why is Tim having to take these like science classes in college? Yeah, sure. I'll log in and take this multiple choice test for you. So you get a good grade. Right. So I guess that was actually proof that I was an entrepreneur, that I was hiring other people to do things that I didn't want to do. But um, you know, even even reading a book about Einstein is interesting because you learn that like, oh, well, he wasn't just born a genius. Like he, you know, he wasn't always the greatest uh, scientist. It didn't come easy. Like the actual path of how he eventually stumbled upon his like theory of relativity was like this. And he wrote all sorts of calculations that, you know, were wrong and he iterated and he kept, because he he felt like he was near the truth. He was like stumbling on it. He was close to it. And finally, you know, at the time he wasn't even working as a scientist when he developed these ideas because no college would hire him. He was working at the patent office at just like a, a desk job, not working in science at all. And he completely revolutionized, uh, you know, the scientific community with this, uh, you know, um, this a discovery of relativity. I mean, everything we thought we knew about like Newtonian physics turned out was just wrong. And this guy who wasn't even a vocational scientist was the one who uh, who discovered all this. So I thought that biography was fascinating because it just proved to me that if you're interested in something, you don't have to have the official academic credentials as long as you're dedicated and you're actually interested uh, interested in it. You know. So now when I look back at my career, my life, you know, how I hope that we can raise uh, our daughter Rosie is always incentivize people to learn about and pursue things that they're actually interested in. Because early on, I think one of the greatest gifts I received, I, I think I was 18 or 19 years old, something like that. And uh, I discovered a checking account that had a couple thousand dollars in it at the bank because I had just gone to the bank to, uh, to a deposit um, a check into my checking account. And they asked me, uh, Mr. Shermack, which checking account would you like to put this in? And I was like, what? I only have my one checking account. And they're like, oh, no, you actually have two. And I was like, no, I don't. I have I have one. And I'm like thinking, oh, shit, am I like a victim of bank fraud? Is someone like opening up, you know, a checking accounts in my name? And they did some checking and they told me, oh, no, this is actually an account that was, you know, started, uh, you know, 18, 19 years ago by your by your parents. And so I was like, okay. And so I went home that night and asked them like, hey, did you start a checking account for me at Bremer Bank and put a couple thousand dollars in it. And like my parents couldn't remember. And then, and then eventually my dad was like, oh yeah, that was supposed to be for your college way, way, way back when, but we just forgot about it. So it's not like they had been funding it all these years. There was, you know, all these years later, there was still only a couple thousand dollars in it. So it probably wasn't earning a ton of interest. I think it was like a checking account, um, but it had a couple thousand dollars in it. And at that time, uh, you know, that, wouldn't do any dent in college. So I just asked them, Hey, is it okay with you if I get like a debit card and link it to that account? And then I use it to buy books on Amazon and I'll, I'll, I'll show you the receipts. I will prove to you that I'm only buying books. So I'm not going to go use this to buy a new snowboard or something. You know, it's, I'll use it for books. And if you want, I'll show you the receipts, but can I just use this to order books on any topic that I'm interested in? So like money never gets in the way 
of me being interested in something, wanting to learning about it so I can like buy books. And my parents were like, uh, okay, whatever. Cause you know, it was only a couple thousand dollars. It wasn't like there was $50,000 in this account or something. And that was like an arsenal for me. I mean, like knowing that, you know, especially if I bought used books on Amazon, cause most brand new books are, you know, 25, 30 bucks. But if you get used ones, you can get them for like 10 bucks often that if I wanted to learn about the psychology of copywriting or the history of marketing agencies in America or, um, you know, Austrian economics or, uh, any, any topic that I found myself, uh, interested in, I'd go buy three or four of the most reviewed books on that topic that had like the best reviews. And I'd become kind of a minor expert in that topic because if, you know, it turns out if you read three or four books on random topics, you probably know more than 99% of people about that topic, except for literal people who work in that, you know, work in that field. And so that, that gift of just a couple thousand dollars early in life, I think completely shaped my attitude and mentality about learning, uh, where most kids learn to hate learning and school makes them hate learning because they subconsciously associate reading books, learning with force. Like, oh, I don't want to read Huck Finn and then have to take a test on it. It's like, well, that kid's probably never going to pick up Huck Finn later in life and actually read it for fun and get anything out of it because they were forced to read it in 10th grade when they didn't really understand why it's an interesting book or the lessons in that book or or the Great Gatsby or Shakespeare or all the books that are you know taught in most high schools across America. We we learn what we really learn isn't Romeo and Juliet or you know. Uh, the Great Gatsby or the books we're reading, what we really learn is to hate reading and to think that books are a waste of time. And that, I think, is the biggest cost of a traditional education and why education is not synonymous with school is that it actually the, the, the net effect for most kids is it teaches them to hate learning. So in a, in a sense, I suppose I got lucky that I had this checking account with a couple thousand dollars in it. So I was able to learn about things and that, that fire, that like intellectual curiosity was never extinguished for me the way that it is for the vast majority of kids that go through the normal uh, conveyor belt assembly line of school and then, you know, college. So once that checking account ran out and I was old enough to have my own credit card, I just kept buying books because I, I loved reading. I loved learning. And now that shows up in all sorts of interesting ways in my, in my career where I find ways to kind of like integrate my, my knowledge and my love of learning into what we're doing, even in the ad agency or the, you know, or the mortgage company. So, uh, that, that, that point there, I think is almost my edu, my educational philosophy distilled into a sentence is if your kids hate learning or hate reading just give them books on topics they're actually interested in reading about, right? Like if you're, I don't know, if if your kid is super into science, because like I was not as a kid, so I'll just use the opposite example of me. If, if your kid is really into science, like don't force them to read books about American history or world geography. Say like, hey, if you want to spend your whole day just reading books or learning more about science, let's do that instead, you know? Because what you're actually accomplishing is you're nurturing that childlike sense of wonder and imagination and curiosity about, oh, there's something I'm interested in. I can learn more about it. And that feeling is thrilling. 
when you're actually interested in something and you discover like that you have the agency to learn more about it, that's one of the most thrilling things in all of the in all of the human experience. And school is very efficient at at stamping that out because you know what? Doesn't matter how deep you were into the science lesson. Once you've been in that class for forty five minutes and the bell rings, you got to go to math or you got to go to Spanish or band or choir or whatever. So it also doesn't matter how innately interested you are in science and you want to go down a specific rabbit hole. Exactly, the class has to move on to the next topic. And so, which is maybe something scientific that you don't care about at all. So even if you innately would have loved science, if you've been able to focus on the three areas that really fired you up, but you kind of had to gloss over those areas and then spend a ton of time on the aspects of it that you don't care about, you might think that you hate science for the rest of your life because you didn't like certain aspects of science, which I think also happens to a lot of kids. But to your point about reading, I think... There's so much potential here to nurture intellectual curiosity in kids that even don't necessarily, I mean, kids, little kids innately have it because we're hardwired to be curious about things. We would not survive as a species if we weren't. But younger kids, while younger kids tend to have it in spades, older kids, oftentimes it starts to get crushed a little bit by either the outright expectations and coercions of well you're supposed to learn about this thing or sometimes it's more of a subtle crushing where they start to think oh I'm supposed to do these types of things and supposed to be interested in this and not interested in this other thing and there's this more like uh, insidious and, and inobvious societal pressure that starts to kind of crush this in kids even if they aren't being forced to coercively learn topics that they're not interested in but encouraging them to read books that they're interested in, reading those books to them if they're not interested in reading them it themselves, if you're willing to foster that curiosity for younger kids by like maybe you guys read a book on science or math or economics or whatever together and then also looking for intersections between their innate curiosities plus the things that they maybe should be learning. Like maybe your kid really hates math, but they're actually really fired up by the idea of making money because they want to buy more books or something else. Like maybe they love reading fiction and they want to buy more books. And so they have this little, they start this little side hustle reselling something so that they can make a little bit of money. And then you can start teaching math in that context. It's like, well, this is, okay, you're selling cookies. This is how many dozen cookies you need to sell in order to recoup the cost of your ingredients, but also like have enough to buy a book. Yeah, uh, that was... As, as a kid, that was totally me. Like I sold cookies at, you know, neighborhood garage sales. I repackaged some of my baseball cards and I would sell them to neighborhood kids. Um, I looked for golf balls at like, you know, the local golf course and I would polish them up again. And then I would try to resell them on hole nine to, you know, golfers coming by who wanted to buy, you know, a golf ball from a cute kid. And I was constantly looking for ways to, you know, ways to make money. I found out later in life, I don't really like like math, but uh, from a from an accounting finance perspective, as an adult, I've actually been kind of getting into like finance and the uh, the uh, philosophy of I guess interest and bonds. Like I'm actually reading several books right now on the history of interest and the history of corporations and corporate bonds and how that idea came to be that you could sell 
a bond for a company and like what what is interest really like conceptually or philosophically like how did humans evolve this idea of charging interest and what do the interest rates say about the society that you live in because over the last you know thousands of years interest rates have come down 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 and interest rates are really just the price of trust right so anyways as I've gone down this rabbit hole of like, as an adult now, I'm 32, uh, I'm 32 years old as we're recording this, I'm learning to actually be fascinated by some some elements of math and accounting and fine. I mean, how, how, how nerdy is that? I'm reading books about the history of interest, right? But I'm, I found a way to be interested in it. And that's only because I kept alive this like intellectual flame of of curiosity because when you're young you don't know enough about the world to actually know what you're interested in so that's something that maybe i disagree with some people um in the in the education world on that they think oh kids always know what they're interested in so you should just let them do whatever they want and i would say well at a young age you know what i plan to do with uh, our daughter rose is just make sure she likes learning likes reading i want to teach her how to read and hopefully guide her in that direction and then, you know, expose her to the basics of science and basic elementary math and reading and geography. And like her interests will take her where she wants to go. If she absolutely doesn't want to learn math when she's, you know, eight or nine years old, I'm not going to like force long division and multiplication, you know, down her throat or something, right? Because I want her to feel like she has a reason to learn that stuff. But you have to expose them to as many things as possible so that they can to they can uh, start to develop those tastes of of uh, what they're interested in, right? And I think school does such a horrible job of that because they force you to learn about every topic equally. Um, but in doing so, they completely extinguish the actual love of learning. And that's the most important thing. You can screw up. You could screw up a lot of things in parenting or raising a kid or trying to homeschool your kid or trying to like design an educational environment where your child can thrive. Like you can screw up a lot of things, but if you keep them interested in learning where they get a that 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 joy of learning is still there, you can screw up everything else and it doesn't really matter cuz that, you know, that's the most important thing. If your kid can somehow become an adult and still be curious about the world and still enjoy reading a book or listening to an educational podcast or watching a documentary on TV about something they want to learn more about. If there's, if they still enjoy learning, that's going to be a successful adult, you know, maybe not financially successful, but that's, that's, that's not everything either. Right? Like life isn't about how much money you make. Life is about how much you enjoy it. You know, some careers are going to pay more than others, but um, I think how we're thinking about raising our daughter, because this is all new to me, right? Like I'm a parent in uh, less than a year ago. So it's not like we have a big family with tons of kids where I can share loads of experience on my theories of parenting, right? But it, r right now we're just starting to think about how do we want to raise this kid, right? Like, are we going to send him to school? Are we going to homeschool? Are we going to unschool? Are we going to do Montessori? Are, you know, um, are we even going to bother teaching them to read or are we just, we're going to wait till they want to learn how to read and then they can, you know, figure it out on their own. So we're, we're, we're exploring a lot of these perspectives and ideas, I guess, for the first time, but just looking back at my life, it's like, well, that probably would have been ideal for me if I just learned the very, very basics as a kid, 
but the emphasis should always be on protecting and and nurturing that childlike sense of curiosity about the world. Because as long as they like learning, um, nothing else that you screw up on as a parent really matters as long as you uh, foster that, I feel like, in your kid. Because that's what it's been in my life. And I still feel that as as an adult, you know, any, any success I've achieved in our business or in my career is because of my just insane level of curiosity about the world. And I find interesting ways to apply it and, you know, hopefully, hopefully make some money doing it. Yeah. Anybody who's, anybody who's read anything that I post on Twitter knows that I deeply agree with everything that you just said, especially your point about, the importance of teaching a child how to learn and the lack of importance of pretty much everything else. If if that metric has been attained, like if you've taught your child to learn, they can catch up on anything that you may have missed yep. over the course of their education, which I think is a very liberating thing for parents to realize. It takes a lot of the pressure off. But it's like, you know, you're a you're a kid might be whatever, 13 or 14 years old, and their peers who are at a public school took a test and memorized the seven levels of the nitrogen cycle of water or whatever the hell that is. And if, if, if they don't know that, if they haven't memorized that, like, do you, do you actually think they're at a disadvantage in life? You know, if they didn't memorize the night or, or if, or if, or if they didn't memorize the atomic tables of is, you know, what's the atomic abbreviation for gold or nitrogen or oxygen? It's like, that does not matter. Like memorizing all those things does not matter in the same way that topics that I am interested in, like I loved geography and I loved memorizing the capitals of all the states and the capitals of countries and knowing what the different geopolitics were in different areas of the world. Like I was into that even in like fourth grade, I would wake up and watch like World War II documentaries early on Saturday morning. It was like, I wasn't watching cartoons as a kid. I was watching the History Channel documentaries. Like, so I was a nerd about that stuff as a kid. But do you actually think it matters if someone's not interested in that? Do you actually think it matters that, you know, by fifth or sixth grade that your kid has memorized all the states and state capitals in the United States? No, absolutely not, right? Like, none of that stuff matters as long as they yeah. actually like learning. It doesn't matter and it's used as a proxy for... Like I, th I think people are are at varying levels of consciousness versus subconsciousness are using it as a proxy for a child's overall level of development right, and right. and intellectual capacity. It's like okay, they can memorize things. They have this like base level of knowledge of how the world works. This is like a very easy box to check. Like it's kind of a standard thing that every kid's supposed to know. I remember when I was maybe like eight, uh, I was at a family reunion, uh, and I had a really big extended family growing up. So like lots of second cousins and stuff. And one of my cousins who was a couple years older than I was, I remember my great uncle asking her, what's the capital of Missouri or something like that? And she just spit it out. And he's like, okay, what's the capital of Wyoming? And she just spit out the answer. And I like, I hadn't learned the state capitals because nobody in my fam my immediate family thought that was even remotely important. And I remember just being very it's confused. Cheyenne. The uh, the the a capital of Wyoming is Cheyenne. <laughs> I know that now because I think Wyoming is cool, but I don't care about I I don't care about the state capitals. I can Google it if I need to know. But what exactly. in what context do I have to have all of this? Like exactly. as an adult, I don't have to have this. Like maybe it's relevant because I care about school choice policy and stuff like that. And so, you know, 
what's happening in different states. The capitals of each state become relevant. But like this is not relevant in my day-to-day life. And my parents knew that when I was a kid, so they never bothered you know, it was, it was not a thing that we were drilling on. I was learning all about how the world works and how, like, I, I was learning about our political system and our history. And, like, I was getting a very robust education, but it was so foreign to me to watch this adult clearly measuring the aptitude of this child by asking them a series of questions, the child could regurgitate the right answer. Yep. And then I could see my great uncle who was just like, yeah, awesome, cool. Like, you're, you're right on track, like, proud of you. And I was just confounded yep. by that as a kid because it was so different from the education I was getting. But that's pretty standard practice for how most people think it's a proxy for, like, are you on track? But there are a million of other things that a child could be learning that are an equivalent level of, like, intellectual like building intellectual capacity that you also could be measuring to see if your child is like, are they learning something? Are they developing their cognitive capacity to, to capture and store and, and synthesize information? Uh, and we just sort of, we systematize it out of laziness because it's easy if we just measure the same thing across every kid and just get this like broad sampling yeah. of where everybody's yep. at. But it's not really beneficial to the individual child at all. Yeah, we uh we uh have an employee at a platform um, who actually went through the Praxis program, um, and you know our, we we like still give her crap about this that like you know years ago when we first hired her I think it was like six six or seven years ago something like that, um like you know we asked her hey name all seven continents because we were just trying to like stump her on basic trivia, um to like make fun of her because she was homeschooled you know and her parents didn't. F- didn't teach certain mm-hmm. things that other kids might have learned in school and she like couldn't name the se- the seven continents and we were we were laughing about that right but like who's laughing now that she makes over a hundred thousand dollars a year working at platform doesn't have a college degree you know she can she's and by the way she's very intelligent i'm talking about a uh, diana um like super interesting mm-hmm. person like l- knows loads about like theology and philosophy and uh, what's what's going on in culture and like a very well-read, interesting person to talk to. And like school and like the, you know, U.S. public school system would measure her intellectual development by like, can you name these arbitrary seven continents or the capitals of all the the provinces in Canada or, you know, like just completely random granular knowledge that's irrelevant to almost everyone because... I can't remember the last time that I needed to, that someone asked me, what are the seven continents? And I needed to name them to be successful in life, right? <laughs> like, and yet Diana's, you know, now in a role where she'll make over $100,000 a platform at this ad agency and uh, has, has, has followed a completely heterodox, like alternative uh, route in her, um, in her education. So there's so many like so many examples of that. Um, I mean, we have people who dropped out of high school working um, working at Platform. We have people with graduate degrees working at uh, at Platform. So I think, as lo- again, as long as you love learning, that's the most important thing. But that's also a hard thing to do because it's 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 simple. It's it's yeah. simple, not easy from a parenting perspective, as I think most worthwhile things in life are, they're simple, not easy. Um, you know, getting in really good shape, losing. Yes. I want to interject here for a yeah. second though, 
what you just said is actually a pretty significant point of controversy, even among people who tend to agree on a lot of the other aspects of, yeah, like, you know, we should be fostering kids' innate love of learning their their intrinsic motivations. Um, there's a pretty broad spectrum of how much people think it's important for kids to enter into adulthood knowing like what that base level of understanding ought to be. Some people are much more kind of anarchistic in the way that you just described. It's like, I don't care if you know what the continents are. Like, are you able to make money, learn something? Like if you need to know the continents, can you go figure it out? And there are other people who consider that to be like a very base level. Like you need a robust understanding in sort of a very liberal sure. arts fashion. Honestly, it's a, it's a fair debate to have, mm -hmm. but my, my own opinion is I'm probably on team liberal arts. Like you should be interested in more than just how to make money in your you know career. You should have some sort of baseline knowledge and all of these things. But how we get there is what I believe is so different than the status quo right now. Because at the end of the day, you can read all the parenting books you want or attend parenting seminars that your church puts on or listen to education podcasts like the Hannah Frankman show. But at the end of the day, your kids are just going to model the life that you live. That's, I think, the that's the insight that I keep coming back to because I'm naturally a reader. You know, I love binging on, you know, books by Peter Gray or John Taylor Gatto or, you know, all these like kind of like contrarian thinkers in education and parenting. And I can nerd out and read thousands of pages of, you know, uh, I guess, insights and ideas on how to raise kids and how to keep your kids intellectual, uh, a curiosity burning, right? Like you, I'm the type of person who will probably overread and spend too much time on it because I actually enjoy, enjoy learning, but it's actually much more simple. You don't need to read thousands of pages of books, right? It's just the way that you live your life, your kids will model what you do, not what you say. So if you want your kids to have, you know, I guess grow up with like an appreciation of a broad liberal arts education where you know a little about a lot of things, you know? Well, if, if you're not modeling that in your life, if your kid doesn't come home from school or if they're not going to school, if they don't walk into your office sometimes and see you reading a book or they, they don't see you at home on the couch reading a book, they're probably not going to think that reading books is cool or that it's important, right? So you can't really expect your kid to live differently than how you are living. Same thing is true of, you know, eating, losing weight, building muscle. Like if you want your kid to be healthy and have good uh, good habits with their physical fitness and wellness, if they don't see you going to the gym or lifting weights in the garage or whatever, like they're not going to absorb by osmosis those habits, no matter what you say, right? So you can have all the educational theories in the world. And I'm sure there's some things that I believe that are maybe factually incorrect about education where Hannah, I'd like, I'm sure that you could show me some book that uh, that maybe completely contradicts something I've said in this podcast. Like, oh, this is actually probably the right way to do this. And I'm 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 totally open to that because I I know that as long as I keep living the life I'm living, where I you know I'm uh, I'm dedicated to learning and reading books and attending conferences. If uh, our daughter Rosie grows up and sees that in her mom and sees that in me, she's going to follow the same path. It's just it's just uh it's just human nature. Well, part of why 
I find it very interesting to talk to entrepreneurs about this and you specifically, because I think even as far as entrepreneurs go, you're pretty pragmatically minded as, about things like education. Like it's both a significant value for you, but it's also something that you really care about the practical side of what can a person do, right. not what boxes have they checked or what books have they read or accolades they've accomplished. Um, I think at the end of the day, really what parents care about, like they care about their children's intellectual development too, but part one of their biggest concerns, especially when they're looking at non-traditional education paths is, is my kid going to be okay yeah. in the real world? Are they going to be able to get a job and, and keep that job and grow in a career? Are they going to be able to make money? Are they going to be able to support themselves? Are they going to be able to navigate complex interpersonal relationships and situations and, and hold their own and, and handle things gracefully? And I think that a lot of the takes that I've heard you share about your own education and also like the education you've alluded to the educations of people who've worked for you, which I want to get into in a second. There's a there's a very heavy undercurrent of pragmatism, which is like, you know, yes, like basically what I feel like I heard you just say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that like, yes, liberal arts are important, having this kind of like liberal arts style underpinning of intellectual understanding of the world, but really like you can pick that up too, as long as you have the practical skills to both learn, but also be competent in the world while learning. And I want to talk a little bit about your experience working with people who are not traditionally educated, because one of the things that makes you very interesting, both as a employer, but also as somebody with opinions about education is that you're, you're, walking the talk, you're employing people and like successfully, no, you're not employing them out of charity, you're employing them because they're the best hires you right. can make for this company that you're very selfishly and capitalistically incentivized to grow because you're, you're working with people who you think are the best possible hires you could make. And a lot of them, like you listed off all the different bachelor's degrees your employees have. Some of them are very traditionally educated, but a lot of them, like you mentioned, you've hired people who didn't even have a high school diploma yet. Uh, you've hired lots of people who've dropped out of college or didn't go at all. What has, I want to know more about like what you're looking for in a hire that makes you say like it's I think it's very intuitive to a lot of parents to hear you say yeah I don't really care if she can rattle off all the continents if she's like clearly intelligent and interested in learning new things and she's competent professionally but I think that's also something that's like very counterintuitive to a lot of people because that feels like such a base level sure. like if she can't do that then and I'm, I'm I'm harping on this example only because I think it's such a great case study of like the bigger conversation that we're having here. What are you looking for in a hire that makes you say, okay, this person doesn't have all the traditional items in the checklist that are supposed to like on a societal level, like we consider to guarantee their baseline competence. What are you looking for? What do yep. you see in a hire that makes you confident that this person is going to crush it at your company? Like what are the base level aptitudes, indicators, capacities that you're looking for that make you want to work with somebody? So the short answer is initiative. That's the one word answer is do you have initiative? The, the long answer is do you have the initiative necessary 
to not just do your job, but also kind of like intellectually understand uh, conceptually how your job and the role we're asking you to perform in our marketing agency or in our mortgage company over at a uh, John Galt Mortgage. Do you understand how that like how that uh, puzzle piece fits in the puzzle of the overall profitability and success of the company, right? Because I want to hire people that, yeah, after the, you know, basic, you know, first two, three, four months of training to get them up to speed on everything that they know how to follow, they know how to follow the playbook in 95% of situations. But when those 5% of situations come up that are exceptional, like in the literal sense of these situations are exceptions to the rule where you have to go off the playbook do they have the initiative and the understanding of when it actually makes sense to break the rules and to break protocol with what we've taught them because they understand what we're really trying to accomplish in in their role that's good for the company that isn't just a you know uh if a then b then c so i'll give you an example uh if uh if uh we hire someone for a sales role and you know we tell them hey we don't we don't negotiate on price so if a customer says hey i want to sign up for platform marketing uh, and we quote them our price and they say well i'll pay you you know half of that and if it works then I'll pay full price and I'll even pay you a bonus if i hit certain goals in my business we just say like no like <laughs> we're not going to make custom deals with our, our uh, marketing services um, to take a discount up front if we perform, unless I literally own equity in your business, right? Because that's just asking me to take all the risk and you get all the upsides. So we have a flat fee structure. And I tell our you know sales team that like if we have enough case studies and proof and testimonials that we know what we're doing. So if they can't look at that and then want to hire us and at price we quote, then like, that's fine. You know, like we we don't need to woo them. We don't need to offer discounts or try to negotiate. Like that's a uh, that's fine. But it just happened uh, this week actually that um, we had we had a client on the phone or a, a a potential client on the phone, and they said, "Well, I I think I'm okay with your price, but I'd actually like to commit for 12 months. And if I sign a 12 month contract." with you, which we don't normally require, by the way, like we don't have 12 month contracts. They said, if I agree to sign a 12 month contract, will you give me a little bit of discount early on just to acknowledge that I'm like committing to work with you guys for, for 12 months. And I want to hire people that understand that even though I've taught them that we do not negotiate on price, we don't offer discounts like platform, you either hire us or you don't that they're smart enough and nuanced enough to be like, okay, but the reason we have that rule, the reason behind the rule is to maximize the success and profitability of our company platform. So in this particular case, um, our salesperson actually bent the rule, typed up a 12-month contract, gave them a minor discount over the first several months that's insignificant relative to the fact that we have this revenue now locked in for 12 months and got them to sign up. And I bring up this example because it's a huge win-win for us. Like that's the exact type of employee I want to hire who has the initiative to do that and also understands that that's actually better for our company than if they technically followed the rule that we trained them on. Right? So they understand the why behind the rules. They they 
they know the business so well that they know when it actually makes sense to break the rules in service of like the greater good of the company and profitability of the company, right? And this example actually happened this last week and it was Diana, the person that we were just talking about that I was making fun of that several years ago didn't know all seven continents, right? That's what we want to hire and uh, optimize for a platform is someone who can conceptually understand the business well enough to know like, okay, here's the rules that I'll follow whatever 99% of the time. But in those 1% of cases where it might actually make more sense to get creative and find a solution that breaks the rules, I'm going to do that. Because if, if, if business were as easy as just always following, you know, a very defined playbook, like we could all just have AI do it or hire cheap overseas labor for $3 an hour, right? Like the reason that Americans get paid 50, 60, 80,000, 100,000, $150,000 a year is because of when, how, how often and when you know to break the rules, right? Like I would actually say in the, in the corporate world, the difference between someone making a million dollars a year versus 200,000 versus 75,000 is how often does that person understand when it makes more sense to break the rules? Because the, the less money you make in your career, like people that are maybe in slightly lower paying jobs where they're making 30,000 or $40,000 a year, um, it's probably because what they do on a day-to-day -day basis is very, very rote and routine and they rarely have to think on their feet and come up with creative, creative new solutions. So that's the long answer is having the initiative and the nuanced understanding of the business to know when it makes sense to act on behalf of the best interest of the business, even if that's not what we, uh, even if that's not what we trained you on. So basically just be a critical thinker, be an independent thinker. Have you noticed an advantage in hiring talent that hasn't been traditionally educated? Um, our, our sample size is really small and I, I shouldn't say really small and that we've only hired one or two, but like if I offer my perspective on that, I have to kind of add that like, well, I haven't hired hundreds or thousands of people. So we're not talking about like a, a statistically significant sample size, but I don't know if I'd say that kids who went to a non-traditional path were, uh, you know, smarter or better than the ones who did as much as I would say there's really no difference. There's no noticeable difference. You know, either you're a hard worker and you have initiative or, or you don't, right? Like even, uh, even Mitch Broderick, one of the hardest working people I know who actually, um, is a co-founder and he's, he's actually the CEO of John Galt Mortgage, not me, Mitch is, um, he doesn't have a college degree and I was willing to invest in that company and, you know, have, have Mitch be the CEO of this company that we're hoping to build into being a hundred million dollar company, um, with full knowledge of the fact that he doesn't have a college degree or an MBA or anything like, I don't care about that. It never once occurred to me to be like, you know what? I want to start this mortgage company, but we need to have someone who has an MBA if they're going to leave. It's like, no, it, that thought never crossed my mind because I know that Mitch has initiative in, in spades. Uh, his work ethic is like, unmatched. If he has to work 16 hours a day to get done what needs to get done, he'll work 16 hours a day. And Mitch understands uh, what we're really trying to accomplish 
you know, in in uh, any situation we find ourselves in, Mitch has like an uncanny ability to be like, what's actually in the best long-term interest of the company versus what makes sense short-term, you know, that might short-term help profit or might short-term keep the customer happy, but long-term is actually not good. So like, just as an example in mortgage, like uh, we don't think of originating mortgages or being a loan officer as being this like intellectually fulfilling or uh, difficult career, but it actually takes insane levels of emotional intelligence on top of financial intelligence and knowing how to read read markets because you may have clients who are buying an $800,000 house and like, you know, newsflash, if you have enough money to move into an $800,000 house, you're probably fairly successful in life. You do probably understand a little bit about business economics and finance. And so it's a huge, uh, it's a huge red flag if the mortgage loan officer that you're working with can't have an intelligent conversation with you about those things. And maybe you're putting 20% down. And so you have a, on a $800,000 house, that's about um, $160,000 down. And so you're financing, what is that? $640,000 off of, uh, off of 800,000. So a $640,000 loan amount. Um, if, if, if you're the loan officer working on that file and the client asks you, so uh, what do you think the Fed's going to do next month? Or do you see rates going up or down? Like they're not asking you to predict the future because no one knows exactly what's going to happen, right? But you better be able to give a somewhat uh, intellectually satisfying answer that tells the client that like they're in good hands, that you fully aware of what's going on in the markets and kind of what the probabilities are of different things that could happen. And therefore what the risk reward calculus is of locking in the rate now versus taking the risk to wait that, well, rates could go down, you know, next week, but like, is it actually worth it? Do we think they're going to come down enough to where that cancels out, um, you know, the risk of not locking at today's rates, which are still pretty good, you know, type thing. Like they want you to be able to advise them. And so even in a, a company like a mortgage brokerage, which again, it's like not a, it's not a university. It's not like a sacred hall of learning, you know, where you think like people that are intellectuals go to work for mortgage companies, right? You still have to have a very high degree of uh, intellectual firepower if you're going to do that at a high level. And the social IQ, the emotional IQ matters a ton. Um, with what I was saying with Mitch, like he needs to be able to tell a client that, uh, hey, I know that, uh, you know, you you really want to wait and see if rates go lower. But I think the smart thing to do is to lock your rate right now because you have way more to, you know, to to lose by floating it than we do by, you know, the modest amount you might gain if rates drop a little bit in the next couple of weeks. You know, so I think we should lock now. And let's say that the client doesn't listen to him and the client's like, nope, you know, because uh, if you're buying an $800,000 house, I don't know, maybe you're a surgeon, you're used to making a lot of money, people respect you, people usually don't say no to you. You're not used to like taking unsolicited advice from other people. So you're like, nope, you know, I'm going to wait. Well, what happens then if it turns out that Mitch was right, that the client decided to not lock their rate and at, when they had that conversation, rates were at 7.5% for like a 30-year mortgage and they were hoping to have it come down to 7.1 or 7.2, but actually it went up to 78 and now their mortgage payment's going to be higher for the next 30 years because they didn't listen to Mitch. Mitch has to have the emotional IQ in that moment on top of all the financial knowledge of everything, right? He has to have the emotional IQ 
to basically fall on the sword. And even though it's completely the client's fault, he needs to basically let the client get mad at him and absorb all of that anger and not throw it back at the client. Like, well, this is your fault, you dumb idiot. I told you to, because you can't say that, right? You have to basically let the client vent, let them get that anger and frustration out, even though it's completely their fault because they actually didn't follow the advice we were trying to give them, that you need to let them vent and basically say, you know, hey, I'm so sorry this happened. You know, we're not going to admit wrongdoing that, you know, like we're not going to lie and say, oh, we screwed up, right? Because we didn't screw up. But you need to be able to have the tact in that moment to not basically not tell the client, ha ha, I told you so. You shouldn't have listened to me, right? Because that's kind of human nature. And so that's what makes someone like Mitch so valuable. And again, Mitch does not have a college degree. doesn't have a graduate degree. And I fully believe that John Galt Mortgage Company uh, at some point in the next you know, five to 10 years is going to be like a hundred million dollar company. Okay. And Mitch is going to be the CEO leading the charge on that company. Doesn't have a college degree, doesn't have an MBA or anything, but he has incredible initiative. He understands finance and economics and his social IQ, his emotional IQ is off the charts. Like Mitch knows how to read the room. He knows how to read people. He knows how to uh, navigate emotionally complex conversations. And all those traits I just listed are just way, way more important for your career than if you've memorized the continents or the capitals or the provinces of Canada, or you know which states are west of the Mississippi or east of the Mississippi, or, you know, like that's far more important to uh, success in your career. And so when people talk about, well, if your kids are homeschooled or they're unschooled, how are they going to react in the real world, right? Like, are they socially prepared? It's like, well, the real world they're the ones who have spent their life in the real world. It's the kids who have been in a cinder block classroom K through 12 that haven't been in the real world, right? So I would flip that argument right over and say it's it's the kids that go to a normal school that frankly have, they don't know anything about how the real world operates. And I know this because I've hired kids out of high school that were homeschooled or you know unschooled. When they were 16, 17, we hired them and they were much more, uh, you know, at that age, they were much more uh, um, practical and they understood social dynamics, I think, better than a normal kid from a normal school who is 16 or 17 and still, you know, thinks it's normal that they have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, right? So over time, I think the the uh, difference is basically negligible. Like over time, when, when, when I look at all of our employees that have gone to a normal school, because I went to a normal public high school. I wasn't homeschooled, even though we totally planned to homeschool our daughter, just with how much the world has changed. I don't want her in a public school or frankly, probably even a private school. We're going to homeschool. But over time, not a huge difference or any noticeable difference, but definitely when they're younger, I think we need to learn as a culture to flip that argument of just because someone was homeschooled, they're not prepared. They don't know the real world. No, it's 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 the kids that have spent their life in a cinder block classroom that have no experience in the in the real world. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience hiring high school kids? I want to know more about this. Yeah. So I mean, we don't we don't go out of our way looking to, you know, but it's happened several times where we got like a um a tip from someone or uh, actually someone reached out to us and they had heard that like, 
you know, hey, uh, a platform is a really awesome place to work. You can work remotely. Um, you know, that Tim and the company are open to working with really smart people that are driven and they're young. And so we've actually had a couple of people who offered to work for free for a month or two, which is probably, well, it's not probably, it is illegal according to like the US federal code to like not pay someone for a month or two of work, but I don't care. Um, and so uh, they said, hey, I'll work for free. And if you if you think that I'm a valuable employee, like hopefully you'll offer me a job. And if not, then I've gained experience. So it's worth it to me because at least I'll know what it takes to succeed in a career. And so will you take me up on that offer? And a lot of people don't understand that like that offer is not as a, it's not as amazing as it sounds from the perspective of the employer. Because if you're saying, hey, I'll work for free for two months, I'm going to spend those two months training you. You're not really going to add as a, you know, 17 year old, whatever, you're not going to add any value to my business in those first two months. You're actually going to consume value. You're a liability, not an asset because I have to, I'm spending that time training you. So even though I'm not paying you, my business is still actually worse off than if I hadn't taken that trade. Where that trade begins to work in my favor as the owner, uh, as the employer is, I don't know, maybe three to six months in if you end up being a good employee and a productive employee, then yeah, it's nice that I saved a couple months of wages. And if you're 17, I probably don't have to pay you as much as someone who's, you know, uh, 40 years old and has a family to feed. But we also operate platform as a meritocracy. So if someone who's, you know, 17, 18 years old is really, really good and they're better than the person who's 38 years old and has a family, like, yeah, I will pay them more than the person who's 38 years old and has a family. Um, but early on, I can start them with less because more than likely, if you're 16 or 17, you're probably living at home. You don't have rent to cover. You know, you don't have all these expenses in your life that someone who's later in their life does. And so it's somewhat advantageous for the business to take chances on young talent. And I think that's a really interesting opportunity, both, uh, both for kids as well as employers. But you have to be sure that the person you're hiring has initiative, right? Because if you take your average American public school educated 16 or 17 year old, there is not a chance in hell I would hire them for, for our company because they don't know how to think. They don't know how to, um, be, be professional, uh, you know, do work when it has to be done, not just when they feel like doing it, you know? Um, so we've, we've hired several people that were very young it's, it's worked out. Like I would have good things to say. It's, it's, it's never blown up in our, you know, in our, in our face, but, um, you know, it's, it all has to do with the individual, which I guess is a different way of saying age doesn't matter, you know, because am I going to hire a 17 year old with initiative, um, over a 35 year old who sort of has initiative? Like, yeah, I will every single time. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm going out looking for people that are 16 or 17 um, because not all 16 or 17 year olds have that initiative. But I would never let age prevent me from hiring someone who has all of the, you know, who, who, who checks all those boxes. Right. So I've basically just flipped, I guess I've flipped the burden of proof, Hannah. Um, you know, most people would immediately disqualify someone based on age. And I just really don't care about age. It's like, well, if you have everything that, we need and you have all those character traits and you have, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, intellectual firepower to do the job. I'm not going to immediately disqualify you 
because of your age any more than I immediately disqualify someone because they do or don't have um, a college degree. Do you, if a parent of a ambitious high schooler came to you and said, hey, my kid's really interested in getting into the workforce, they really aren't interested in the traditional educational track, they want to start working as soon as possible, ideally before they even graduate from high school, maybe this kid's like 14 or 15 at the time, so they've got a little bit of space probably before they'd be applying for a job. Sure. What advice would you give that parent in terms of things to encourage in their kid, things to make sure they're teaching their kid, maybe circumstances to be placing their child in or encouraging them to place themselves in so that they can gain some of the skills that would make them an enticing potential hire to you, what advice would you give that parent? You know, early on, I forget where this saying originated, but um, you have to learn before you earn. And some seasons of life, you want to optimize for learning. And some seasons of life, you're optimized for earning, right? Um, early on in life, I mean, I think honestly, anything up to age 25 should just be all about learning. So it'd be better to be at a job that literally paid $10 an hour if you were learning a ton about the business and you know, kind of absorbing all sorts of institutional knowledge about the industry that you're working in, even if the job itself is shit. Like if it's a low-level, boring, monotonous, routine job, if you're learning all sorts of things about the industry and what it takes to succeed at a company and what type of work gets done, then that's worth it because there's value in that um, in that learning. What you shouldn't go do is take a job that you're not really learning a ton in, but it pays a little bit more because like who cares about a couple extra dollars per hour or even if it's a lot more dollars per hour if you're not learning a lot. So, you know, if I was, you know, if I'm a parent and let's say that we fast forward into the future 18 years and Rosie, my daughter is 18 years old, um, that's exactly what I would tell her. Like go find the job in in the industry or in the specific company where you feel like you can learn and absorb the most from the company, it's probably going to mean it's a smaller company more often than not, because the larger company that you join, the less interactions that you're going to have with like senior management leadership, you know, the more likely you're just buried doing some low level job and you just show up clock in clock out. And it's very, uh, bureaucratic. There's not a lot of social interactions and learning going on. But if you can join a small, growing startup company that ideally has like, you know, less like 10 or less employees, and you just say, hey, I'm 17, 18, like, what can I do to add value? I don't even care if you pay me or if you want, pay me $10 an hour. I just want to add as much value to you as possible. Like, what, what I would tell Rosie to tell an employer is, and again, I'm not even sure if this is legal, so I'm just riffing. This is not legal advice. It's not career advice. Don't sue me if I say <laughs> anything that, but I would probably tell her, like, tell them I will firmly commit two years to working with you. Because I think that's the biggest unspoken fear or risk that, of all, that a lot of employers, myself included, uh, have about hiring really young people is Young people have the unfortunate tendency to job hop every six months whenever they find a newer, more interesting job or something that pays $2 an hour more, right? So the the uh, the risk that employer takes is like, well, why would I hire a young person 
if I think there's a very reasonable pro, uh, possibility that they might jump ship in nine months or a year, right? Like it's just not, honestly, it's not worth training them if they're going to leave after a year or, you know, God forbid in six, seven, eight months, right? Um, and young people think of it as like, well, it's not an important job anyways. And so who really cares if I leave after six or seven months? Cause they'll just find someone else. But it, it, it goes both ways. Like you, uh, you uh, see what I'm saying. So like, I'm not going to hire you if, if I think there's a, um, a high probability that like, right when you finish your training, I'll only get two or three months out of you before you peace out for some other internship or some other job, or you want to go backpack Europe or whatever. Right. So I would tell Rosie, tell an employer that I'm going to commit to you for two years. And so I just want you to know that, that if you train me in, I'm not leaving in four months or five months or six months. I want you to invest in me and develop me and treat me like I'm going to be around for the long term because I will commit two years working at this place. And I'm going to give you everything I have in terms of effort. And I just want you to know that I'm not going to you know, peace out just because some other company sees my potential and tries to poach me six months from now or, or nine months from now. Like I will make that solemn, you know, solemn oath of honor to you that I will be here for two years. Uh, as a business owner, that would be incredible to hear. And I would hire that person in a, in a heartbeat if they kind of made that handshake deal with me, you know? Um, so that's, that's, that's definitely something I would think about because you have to think about it from, from the perspective of the employer, right? Like, does this make sense? Uh, does this make sense for them? And then you have to go out of your way. Once you, once you get a job or an apprenticeship or whatever at some company, if you're a young person, you're 17, 18, go out of your way to learn about the industry and learn the institutional knowledge of that, uh, of that company and of the product or service that you're selling. Like, don't just do your job. Like, ask your superiors, ask your managers, ask the founder of the company if it's a small enough company where you can talk directly to the founder, CEO of the company. Ask them questions about uh, profit margins or risk or where they're advertising or is the company or the industry growing right now or what do they think the biggest threats are or what's a big annoying problem that if I solved this would really make the company better off? Like, is there any annoying problem that if only someone could solve this or figure out a better process or a better way of doing this, or are there any costs where we're just like, man, why is doing this so expensive? There's got to be a cheaper, better way of doing this. that would save the company money. Ask those types of questions, right? Because that it, it both shows you're a curious employee, but you'll learn so much more. Because again, you're optimizing for learning earlier in your career. It's not about earning, it's about learning. Because the more you learn very quickly, you'll be put in situations in your career where you have more authority and you're going to earn more, right? So be as curious as possible. Ask as many questions as possible about, like, I would love if we had an employee who was 17 or 18 and was asking me questions about profit margin or this, you know, the structure of our company or growth, uh, growth ideas or the biggest threats or risks I see in our, in our industry. Like I would love to tell, you know, tell a young person about that. Cause it's exciting having those conversations with someone who gives a shit, you know, and most people you hire these days, they just show up, they clock in, clock out. They want to do their job. You know, they don't really think about the business itself. 
even if you don't want to own a business someday, even if you don't want to be an entrepreneur, it will be better for you and your career if you act interested in the business and the industry that you're working with. Uh, learn all that institutional knowledge as if you're going to someday start your own company. It'll make you a way more interesting and valuable employee and you'll be making way more money in your career by your mid-20s than probably most people are when they're 35 or 40 if that's the mentality you take about uh, about your education. There's so much you can learn on the job just by being a curious person. Yeah, I have personal experience with that advice that you just gave. I don't remember. I may have even picked some of this up from you because I've known you since very early on in my career journey because of your friendship and affiliation with Praxis as a business partner of Praxis hiring people coming out of the program. And, you know, that was my first real startup job. So you, I, you may have been the person who gave me this advice in the first place. I don't remember. But pretty early on in my time working full-time at Praxis, I started asking the CEO, Isaac Morehouse, a lot of questions about the business itself. Because I started out, I was working in the education department I was like very siloed inside of a specific component of the sure. business and it was a small company so I got experience pretty much everywhere in the company but like my expertise was very clearly defined to a specific aspect of the company but I wanted to understand the business side and so I remember I just went up to Isaac one day and I asked him like hey can we go to lunch and I just ask you a ton of questions about how the business works and he said absolutely and we went and got lunch and we talked he, he just kind of like walked me through how he thinks about the strategy and again like your boss will be flattered if you ask your boss to do that like hey can i take you out to lunch and just ask you questions about the business because i'm genuinely curious to learn more about how this company operates like i'm sure in that moment when isaac heard you say that he was like oh my god absolutely you know because it's fun <laughs> Pretty to much, work yeah. with someone who's <laughs> actually curious about what you um about what you do. So don't ever think if you're listening to this that like, oh no, my boss wouldn't want to do that or they might be mad at me if I ask. They'll probably be thrilled that you asked because it's very possible no one has ever asked them that before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something like, I mean, I'm now in the shoes of I'm the person who's hiring people. And I love it when people ask me more specific questions about what I'm thinking in terms of strategy because I'm thinking about it all the time and I get really excited about it. And I take it as such a positive indicator when someone is also interested in how I'm thinking about this. But at the time when I asked Isaac these questions, I had no clue that I was going to be running my own business someday. I was just thinking about it in terms of how do I grow inside of the company? How do I find ways to be more valuable? Like I knew I had to be a high level strategically valuable in order to grow in the way that I wanted to. So I had to understand how all the levers and moving pieces worked yep. so I could see where it made sense for me to think more strategically and therefore me be more valuable. But I think it's really easy to underestimate when you're young too, just how valuable in the long term having this business sense is going to be. Like, I think a lot of, I think some people who are entrepreneurial at a young age have big sweeping ambitions, but a lot of people, they just are really excited to figure out how to make money in this one specific arena, or they're just really excited to not have whatever job they don't like anymore and be self-employed. And the big picture kind of comes later. So I think any type, I'm, I'm biased because I am 
very entrepreneurial. You are obviously extremely entrepreneurial. So we're having, you know, we're we're maybe a little biased towards the the overarching and universal value of this, but I do think a lot of people underestimate just how valuable across the board in a career entrepreneurial thinking is, even if the the long-term benefits are very inobvious. To your point earlier about like, you know, when you were in school, the career that you're in now didn't even exist yet. There's so many different potentialities that especially now when the internet's changing so rapidly, AI is changing everything now, like we're, we're, the career landscape we're preparing our kids and ourselves for is going to change very dramatically. Like there's no way we can predict the long-term use cases of a lot of the things that we're doing. But I do think the the skill of entrepreneurial thinking itself is going to be long-term valuable no matter what trajectory you're on. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on on the applications of entrepreneurial thinking more broadly because you're also working with people who, like, they work for you. They're not running their own businesses, but they know how to think entrepreneurially to some extent, and I'm sure that makes them valuable as employees and team members for you too. Yeah, you know, like, we use this phrase entrepreneurship or capitalism, whatever, and it's just legalized creativity. Like, entrepreneurship is really just creativity. <laughs> right? It's legalized creativity. So when we say we want an entrepreneurial employee or entrepreneurial thinking, it's just independent creative thinking where you're capable of functioning in an environment where there's not clear one, two, three, four instructions, you know, that like sometimes you have to go off playbook and kind of just like wing it, you know, and just kind of riff something based off of your intuition that you're comfortable in a situation like that. So maybe a client tells you something really surprising or markets do something weird or, you know, whatever business you're in, that you're able, you're uh, capable of going off script, right? That you know, you know your subject matter well enough to know that when things go weird and you have to go off script, that you feel comfortable kind of winging it and still getting the results because you understand why we have the rules and why we have the systems and processes we have so that you know in, in those exceptional cases when it actually makes sense to break the rules. You know, I used to work at uh, Disney when I was uh, in college. I did a year at the Disney College Program, which is this thing they do at uh, Walt Disney World in Florida where you go work at Disney World and just like a you know minimum wage job in the amusement parks, but then you get to take Disney college classes um, on nights and weekends where like it's actually taught by Disney executives that work at Disney corporates. So you're taking uh, college accredited business classes from actual Disney executives. And all the case studies obviously in those classes and all the lesson plans are built off of like uh, business case studies from the history of the Disney company. So that was actually really interesting. Um, but as I was as I was in the training for that program to become a cast member at Disney World, and I was just, again, minimum wage job where I'm working on the rides and I'm the person who hits go. And when the ride's done, I hit stop and I undo people's harnesses on the roller coaster and like think, like minimum wage jobs at Disney World, right? But you even learn that like they train their employees that uh, when it makes sense to go off script and they empower them to like, hey, when you see a situation, we trust you to do what's in the best interest of the guest. So like, as an example, uh, if I see a kid who just, you know, whatever's five years old and his parents bought him an ice cream cone and he's a kid and he trips and he dumps his ice cream cone all over his shirt, you know, ruins the ice cream cone, ruins the shirt. Like that's not Disney's fault. 
right? That's not the Walt Disney Company's fault that the kid is an idiot and a klutz and he dumped his ice cream cone on his shirt, right? But it is Disney's problem that they know exactly what their lifetime value of a customer is and that most families are now spending between five dollars and $10,000 on a vacation to Walt Disney World. And most families will go somewhere between three and five times. So the lifetime value is almost $50,000. And most kids grow up, if they went to Disney World, as kind of a rite of passage, they want to bring their kids back to Disney World because they want to give their kids the same childhood experiences that they had. So that ice cream incident, if it pisses off the parents and it ruins their vacation and they never go back, could actually cost the Disney company $100,000 or more in forfeited future revenue if that in any small way hurts that family's relationship with the brand. So Disney will train their minimum wage employees that, hey, if you see a kid dump his ice cream cone on a shirt, you can, you can leave your post, just let one of your coworkers know, hey, I, I need to go solve this, watch my job for a second. You can leave your post, go walk that kid over to the nearest uh, you know, retail store, grab a shirt that fits off the rack, let the, uh, um, let the cashier know that you're going to comp this one for the kid, get him, uh, get him that free shirt. You'll sign the paperwork later to kind of explain what happened, but they'll, they'll give you the free shirt, walk him over to where they got the ice cream cone. They'll give him a brand new ice cream cone because that only costs whatever 50 cents you know, of cost, even though they sell the ice cream cone for probably 10 bucks or whatever, right? So the actual cost of solving that, if the, if the t-shirt costs 20 bucks, the Disney company probably paid $5 wholesale for that t-shirt. The ice cream cone costs 10 bucks. It probably costs 50 cents, right? So we're talking about $5 in 50 cents of cost to solve a problem that might save them a hundred grand on on the back end, but more importantly, they call that a magic moment where like you just completely transform that family's relationship to the Walt Disney Company. Because that's like a magical moment where they will tell their friends and family about that, that, oh, wow, we were at Disney World with Timmy and Timmy's a klutz and he dumped his ice cream cone over himself. And a cast member ran over, got him a new ice cream cone and gave him a brand new Mickey Mouse t-shirt, right? That transforms what could have been a really negative experience that kind of ruined their day into being a super positive experience that they'll actually tell people about. So you want to put yourself in situations as a kid where you learn things like that about how the business world operates. Because I was having these thoughts and learning these things when I was 18, 19. And now I, you know, when I go to Disney World or I go on vacation as an adult, I never look at these situations the same because I understand the incentive structure and the economics of how hotels and resorts think about lifetime value and why they'll be, why they'll bend over backwards to keep you happy as a customer. I never could have learned that in college, right? I don't care if you majored in hospitality in college. You're not really going to learn that unless you put yourself in a real world environment where you're, uh, you know, learning on the job the way that business decisions are, are, uh, actually made. And so again, if people say, oh, well, if my kid's homeschooled or if my kid's, you know, not in a normal school environment, like, will they ever learn how the real world works? It's like, well, which one's in the real world learning how the real world works versus which one is locked in a classroom from K to 12. So the more you learn the institutional knowledge that it's hard to convey that knowledge in books, but just the way that business owners, entrepreneurs actually make decisions, I think uh, think the better off you'll be. You probably have more of a 
respect and admiration for other entrepreneurs than maybe anybody else I know. Just like the level of of respect and and captivation of the the mythos of entrepreneurship is such a strong underpinning of how you talk about people who are entrepreneurs. You you write all the time about famous entrepreneurs and stories from their lives and and the ways that those stories have impacted you and you're clearly very captured by almost the magic of it as a cultural phenomenon. Where does that come from? Did that like was that instilled in you as a child as well that made you want to be this entrepreneurial as an adult? And if not, where did you pick this up? That's a good question. And I don't know. I've always been interested in history. So even back when I was in, you know, second grade reading books, I would pick books about famous people and want to read about them. There was a series at our little school's library about, you know, athletes and famous people in American history. I, like, I, I remember reading books and as, I mean, it's like books. The book is probably like 30 or 40 pages long, right? But like elementary school books about like Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio and baseball or, uh, you know, Bo Jackson in football or, um, you know, Michael Jordan in basketball. And just, I loved reading about really successful people. And so as an adult, that kind of just continued. And I love reading biographies about successful entrepreneurs or interesting people. I mentioned, you know, Albert Einstein, right? Um, and I just think there's so much more context and you learn to appreciate them better when you realize like, how many times they failed. I think that's probably the number one lesson you get from reading biographies that makes me respect entrepreneurs so much is that people will hear about, you know, whatever, Steve Jobs, Walt Disney, um, or Vanderbilt, or insert whatever entrepreneur, Ray Kroc from McDonald's, Sam Walton with Walmart, whatever. And they kind of just assume, wow, they're really, really successful. And they must be so smart. They must be so visionary. It's like, no, they actually just have an insanely high risk tolerance, uh, tolerance and an almost unhuman capacity to tolerate failure and not have it like emotionally wreck them. Because when you read about Disney, you realize like how often in Walt Disney's life he was on the verge of literal bankruptcy, like had even after he, be, after he became a millionaire with Snow White uh, to... Uh, you know, to build Disneyland, he had basically mortgaged all of his company stock. He cashed out his life insurance policy, mortgaged his personal home. His wife didn't even know a lot of this. So he had leveraged every single dollar to his name, even after he was like a decamillionaire because he just wanted to build this Disneyland theme park because he believed in it. Um, and had Disneyland not worked, he would have lost everything. Um, you know, you see that in the life of Steve Jobs with uh, you know, building Apple, getting fired from Apple, then, uh, you know, helping co-launch Pixar and, you know, lead Pixar eventually to the release of Toy Story. And they were eventually acquired by Disney years later. Um, fun fact, Steve Jobs actually became a billionaire via the sale of Pixar, not Apple. It was Pixar that made him a billionaire. And because Disney paid with uh, mostly, mostly stock in that transaction. At the time Steve Jobs died, he was the largest single shareholder of the Walt Disney Company because of the Pixar acquisition. But Steve Jobs' life is just defined by failure after failure after failure. But we tend to remember the wins and the highs and the victories. 
But when you learn about like how close they were to going bankrupt, or sometimes they did go bankrupt and then they started over later, and the epic failures and cash flow problems and borrowing money to meet payroll. I mean, even reading uh, um, the the uh, biography of the founder of Nike, a uh, uh, Phil Knight. You know how they were just they were basically functionally bankrupt until the moment they IPO'd because they were constantly paying last month's bills with next month's revenue because they hadn't figured out a way to have a positive cash flow cycle with ordering the raw materials for shoes and having enough inventory in stock to sell the shoes that like they basically had to IPO because if they didn't get that capital from going public, like the company was going to go out of business. And so until the moment that uh, Phil Knight brought Nike public, like he considered himself poor. He's like, we might have this big company that looks successful, but we actually have no money and on any given moment, we're like negative on the books. We're just hoping that sales continue. So again, uh, next month's sales, you know, are paying for last month's bills and debt was financing, uh, debt was financing the whole thing. And so like the more you learn about entrepreneur stories, the more you appreciate that it's not actually they're smarter than you. They don't have IQ, like perfect IQs. They're not geniuses. It's not that they're even necessarily more innovative or visionary than you as much as, yeah, they have a certain degree of, you know, vision and imagination and business savvy or whatever, but a lot more of their success has to do with the fact that they just kept trying and they never let any particular setback or failure stop them. And I think that's really inspiring once you learn that, that it's totally normal to feel like a failure in business, even if you're five years in or 15 years in or 25 years in, because that's exactly what all the most successful people felt like in their careers, often right before they hit it big, as they were just an abject failure. So um, I find it fascinating reading reading biographies for that reason. I have to ask you, you said that you have 2,000 books in your studio where you're recording this and that you anticipate having 4,000 by the time you're 40. Uh, I know some of the books that have been very influential to you. Obviously, you have a copy of Atlas Shrugged behind you and you're wearing a T-shirt for the company that you named after John Galt. So that's obviously been an influential one for you. What have been some of the most important books that you've read? Um, man, there's, 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 there's so many ways I could you know go with that question because it depends on the topic, obviously. But I'll just assume that someone's asking about business or entrepreneurship. Um. I think The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss is a really great and underrated book because the the a title scares people away because they think it's just like a fluff book about not working hard and whatever. But The 4-Hour Workweek has some incredible um, chapters and ideas about like productivity and what productivity really means on a day-to-day -day basis and in your career. And just thinking about the arc of your career, like what do you want to accomplish in in life? And so reading the four-hour work week at a you know fairly young, impressionable age really made me thinking differently about my career um, early on, which I'm like so grateful for. And I've read that book probably half a dozen times. Um, I even speak to high school classes sometimes. And usually what I do is I buy a copy of that book for everyone when I speak and I'll just bring a box of them and hand one out to every kid. So the four-hour work week... Um, definitely has some really good ideas on just entrepreneurship and productivity and thinking about your career. The uh, E-Myth by uh, Michael Gerber. And E-Myth stands for the Entrepreneurial Myth. 
of being really, really good at doing something is not the same thing as being really, really good at running a business that does that thing. So like the uh, metaphor they use in that book is, let's say you're great at baking cakes and you open a, you open a bakery because everyone has told, you know, everyone has told you how much they love your cakes. Well, being passionate about baking cakes and being really, really good at baking cakes is not the same thing as being passionate or being good at running a business that bakes cakes. It's an entirely different skill set. And until you remove yourself from being the one baking all the cakes, you kind of have to work on your business, not in your business. That's the famous phrase from that book, work on your business, not in your business. Um, so that was really influential early on realizing that like if if I want to build a business in an agency that's bigger than me, where it's not just Tim working 80 hours a week or 100 hours a week to keep clients happy, I have to learn how to build systems and processes so that what I do can be duplicated by other smart people. Because I'm not, you know, I don't kid myself. I'm not like the smartest marketing person in the history of, of advertising, right? It's about building systems so that other smart people can do what you do. So you can focus always on kind of the strategy. So the, the E-Myth is a, is a really great book. In terms of like personal development and kind of like inspirational Reading one book I love that most people haven't heard of is called Straight Line Leadership, and it's by a Dusan Jukic. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm guessing it's like Eastern European, something like that. But the book is called Straight Line Leadership. And I guess the thesis is that most people live their life between cause and effect of trying to, you know, it looks like this, and they constantly invent excuses and go the most inefficient route because it feels easier at the time where almost anything in life, whether it's business, personal life, health, wellness, relationships, whatever, it's easier if you just address your problems straight on, like the, you know, the shortest line between two points is a straight line. And so the book is called Straight Line Leadership about what that looks like when you like radically apply that to every area of your life. And you just realize how not straight line you're actually living because it just is a little bit more maybe emotionally comfortable to not take a straight line approach. Um, I've read a ton of like personal development, self-help books. And I think that one stands above all the other ones I've read in terms of just how clear and actionable, uh, and practical that book is. So a straight line leadership. Um, I mean, there's, there's, uh, so many more books I could share on advertising, marketing, sales, business, whatever. But, um, I guess I would finish by saying read biographies. Biographies are awesome. You'll learn more about entrepreneurs by reading their biographies than you will from reading normal uh, normal business books. So I love uh, Sam Walton's biography. I think it's called Made in America about the founding of Walmart and how crazy that story was about how he built Walmart uh, from scratch. I love uh, Ray Kroc's biography about McDonald's. It's called Grinding It Out. It's actually an autobiography. Um, he actually wrote the book. It's fascinating. Uh, again, just how constantly broke and uh, McDonald's was and so many times it could have failed and all the challenges they had to overcome to get McDonald's where it is uh, today. Um, I love the book Walt Disney, an American original by uh, Bob Thomas. It's a biography about, you know, obviously Walt Disney's life. And that's like the official authorized biography from the Disney family that they interviewed all the people who actually knew him um, to make that book, uh, Titan about, uh, John Rockefeller. The book is called Titan 
that's a really good one as well. Just realizing all the random habits and quirks that Rockefeller had to build Standard Oil, um, and how just his in, insane long-term thinking approach to everything. Um, Snowball is a biography about a Warren Buffett. It's really long. It's almost a thousand pages, but super, super interesting book that just goes deep into like the philosophy um, and business decision-making of Warren Buffett. Um, that's a really, really great book. Because again, it's like, it's not that I care about knowing all the details of Warren Buffett's life or Rockefeller's life, but as you read this, you're extracting information from it and lessons that completely apply uh, to our life today and what I'm doing even in my ad agency that has nothing to do with building a Walmart or Standard Oil or a hedge fund like Warren Buffett has with Berkshire, you know. Um, so I, I love reading business biographies because I can always find a way to apply what I'm reading about in the stories to what we're doing at our companies. Tim, if people have enjoyed the conversation that we just had and they want to read more of your work or listen to you in other places or find more about what you're doing, where would you send them next? Yeah, so I'll do a couple plugs. Uh, first, I love Facebook. That's my preferred social media. So just look up Tim Shermack on Facebook. I have a public profile so you can find me. That's where I publish most of my rants. I'm in the process now of launching um, you know, more, more of a traditional blog where I'll share some thoughts at a happy capitalist, but the website isn't live yet, so I can't I can't give out the URL yet. Uh, but you can just Google, you know, happy capitalist Tim Shermack, and that'll eventually pop up. And then what we're doing with John Galt Mortgage is building a, a new mortgage company with a new business model um, that hopefully results in lower, lower payments and a better deal for any um anyone wanting to buy a house. So we're kind of, again, inspired actually by what we learned by uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller, how they built their companies. We're kind of using some of those lessons and applying it to something totally different, a mortgage company. Um, and again, hopefully that results in people saving a lot of money if they do their mortgage with John Galt versus any other mortgage company. And you can find out more about that at johngaltmortgage.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. This was really fun. Cool. This was fun. Thanks, Hannah. You've been listening to the Hannah Franklin Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. If you are listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating. Please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let me know what you think. That's it for this week. I'll see you next week, friends.